Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to give you an update on what happened yesterday, about 24 hours ago. Uh, police uh, got a call, a 911 call from Bishop Ryan Secondary School up on the South Mountain uh, about a caller to the school who threatened to bring a weapon. Uh, it caused all kinds of activity around there and a great deal of consternation. Uh, it turned out well. They, they found nobody, but just the same. Uh, the angst that an awful lot of people went through is rather troubling. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Will Mason, uh, Superintendent with Division 30 with Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Will, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. No, nope, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Well, let me ask you, first of all, when a call like this comes in, uh, what, what kind of action do police take? What's the protocol when you get in a, a, a situation like this? Uh, generally, so when, when we get a call like this uh, and uh, a threat like this, we respond with a lot of resources very, very quickly. The school had already followed their protocol uh, by the time we got there and had gone into lockdown. So uh, it was a difficult time of day because some students are obviously just arriving at the school. So some of those students uh, managed to, uh, the school managed to divert them away from the school. Uh, so it was quite chaotic when uh, officers first arrived because you've got some students who are locked in classroom and some students that are arriving um, and just uh, showing up to attend class. But, but basically we uh, attend officers right away, uh, form up a team and enter the school and start to look for a, uh, a potential threat. Um, and then very quickly uh, our tactical team came uh, and supported those officers. Um, and essentially what happens is we keep the school in that state while we do a methodical search to determine uh, ultimately that there is no threat there on site. Now you mentioned that the school enacted their protocol. Do, do, do police work with, with boards of education? I guess businesses, anybody, because this could happen anywhere, I suppose. Uh, to establish that protocol of, uh, to, to exactly what they should be doing? Yeah, so we have, so the, the, the schools are actually uh, mandated, much like they're mandated to, uh, to do fire alarm drills. They're, they are mandated uh, in terms of lockdown protocols and procedures. Uh, but we do work quite closely with the schools. We have a police school board protocol. We've had that for a number of years and work with the schools on a variety of things, um, a great variety of things, but uh, lockdowns and uh, hold and secure type situations uh, amongst them. And, and how do you establish uh, exactly what should happen with that? For instance, in, in the Bishop Ryan situation, you mentioned that some students were locked down, others were not. Uh, how do you make that determination who goes where? Well, it, it, essentially, uh, some of the students, as I said, were arriving, were still on buses, so it doesn't make sense to take them into the school sure. um, and lock them down. We, we know they're outside of the school, and we believe the threat to potentially be in the school. So we want to, if, if anybody uh, is outside of the school, we want them to remain outside of the school. So that was, uh, that's more of a timing thing and uh, it, it kind of an ad hoc uh, situation, but it makes, it makes sense on the fly, and the officers are very good. The, the protocol we use for responding to these types of incidents is very fluid, and officers are empowered to make um, some pretty key decisions uh, very quickly on their own. Um, because we know that uh, time in these type of situations is uh, is of the essence. So we need to make decisions quickly. So keeping the students out of the school who are already out of the school 
uh, and diverting them away, we diverted them to a, a nearby elementary school and then had officers go there and meet with them. And, and that makes the most sense. And the students who are already in there, it's not, we can't determine that it's safe to extract them and get them out of the school. So we lock them down. That's the, so we're looking for the safest option for any student uh, or any group of students uh, based on the circumstances that we have. Now you say that you do a sweep of the school. Is that a, a classroom by classroom sweep? It is. It is. So it, uh, as you can imagine, and as I, I mentioned yesterday, uh, it's the school I think has a student population of just over 2,000. It is a very, very large school. It's a very new modern school. Uh, and very large, so it is a time-consuming process. Uh, but And I would think that even if you go through classroom A, for instance, and you find that everything seems to be okay, they're still supposed to stay there until you get an all-clear. That That is correct. Unfortunately, because if we, as you can imagine, if, if as we move through each classroom, we then escort that class of students out of the school, uh, that slows down our process, and, and the goal is to, if there is a threat in the school, to get to the threat as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, I mean, you can't look at this in, in a vacuum, really, can you, Will? I mean, you know, this is, let's face it, this is like 48 hours after that terrible incident in Pittsburgh, so, I mean, everybody's going to be on edge when something like this is, is, is on your plate all of a sudden, both the school, obviously the students, and, and, and even your officers. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think you're quite correct there. I, I know that was likely on a lot of people's minds. It was certainly on my mind as I was responding to the scene um, it, that uh, we've had these incidents down in the States, so there's definitely a heightened awareness. But as I said yesterday, uh, anytime we get a threat like this, we take it very seriously and we bring a number of resources to bear very quickly. Now, you've determined, uh, well, what did you determine? I don't want to put words in your mouth here. Obviously, you didn't find anything. So uh, do you classify this as a hoax or, or something that might have happened? How do you, where, are you, where are you on this investigation now? Well, I, I can't go too deeply into that. Obviously, we've got, uh, we've got some pieces we've got to work through. But at this point, uh, we, didn't, uh, we determined that uh, there was no validity to the threat yesterday, that it was just that, a threat without, uh, without any actual action. So there was nothing that we found uh, in the school or, or during our investigation on site yesterday that indicated that anybody had entered the school, had brought a weapon into the school, or, or tried to cause any harm to, to anybody. It was just that. It was a, a threat. But we're going to be certainly following uh, that up and putting a number of resources into place to track down the source of that. Now, you didn't receive the call. The call went into the school. Is that correct? That is correct. Is there a, a tape of the call? Did they record this? Uh, no, it's not a recorded line that, uh, that they called into. Okay, so you don't have that. So without getting into too many specifics, because obviously I don't, I don't want you to expose any of the investigation out here uh, in case sure. whoever did this is listening. But, but where do you begin, uh, just on a, on a macro level, where do you begin an investigation like this? Well, it, it, it's uh, with any investigation, we look at uh, we look at talking to witnesses, and in this case, the witnesses are the people who actually received the call. So we start with we start with talking to them, and then we work we work outward from there. Um, yeah, and I can't get too far into all the investigative techniques that we'll use, but uh, suffice it to say, we we do take these things very seriously. We did tie up a number of resources there, and, and we recognize most of the police officers on site yesterday. Their parents themselves. Uh, we recognize the, the trauma this puts the students uh, and the staff through, 
um, and the impact this has on them. So we've got a pretty strong motivation to uh, find the culprit responsible for this. This is this has got to be a rather complex operation, as you mentioned. Uh, you've got officers in the school. You've got officers outside the school. Uh, we're told, of course, uh, our Sarah Kane, CHML Sarah Kane, was up and we're having a look around and. Obviously, this gathers a crowd. I mean, as parents find out about this, obviously they're going to want to head over to the school and see what's going on. So you've got almost like a crowd control situation, I would think, too. We, we do, and we we try to as best we can uh, communicate out to parents that we we just need some time to do our investigation. That uh, at the time that it was ongoing, everybody was safe, and uh, they were in a spot that was safe uh, for them at the time and to just be patient with us. Uh, obviously, we can't uh, get into the exact details of how far we are along in our search uh, while we're in the midst of it. Um, but uh, we recognize that, you know, with, a, with not a lot of information, um, a parent's thoughts leap to the worst possible conclusion. Uh, and we just try to reassure as best we can that uh, we're doing the best we can and, and we just need some time to do our job. And uh, coming to the scene and things like that, uh, and especially uh, attempting to communicate uh, with your child while on their cell phone while they're in there in that lockdown situation, while it's tempting, uh, it's uh, something we want to steer parents away from. We uh, it can spread spread some misinformation. It can create a little bit of panic, and it also ties up the cellular network, which is something we we do rely on along with everybody else for communication. And I mean, sure, that's one of the messages that's imparted to the students. Uh, you know, while they're in the lockdown, is you know, just stay off there and uh, and and let the officers do their job. Obviously, yes. Yes, absolutely. I know that oftentimes there you have drills. I mean, the officers are well trained to, to to respond to circumstances like this. Is is this something that that police services and the tactical squad work on? To, you know, from time to time, so that they can exactly know what they're supposed to do when something like this happens. Yeah, it is. It's something that uh, we do regular training on, and we also uh, our our training team is very good at looking at trends with these types of incidents and we adjust our uh, response tactics uh, accordingly as, as things change slightly and our tactical team is very good. They train, uh, they train on these things all the time. They're very, very skilled at what they do. Well, uh, it, thankfully nothing happened yesterday, of course, but, but uh, obviously the investigation continues and we'll look forward to updates on this. Uh, Will, thank you so much for the time today. It's greatly appreciated. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. That's uh, Superintendent Will Mason from uh, Division 30 uh, leading the investigation as to what's going to happen or what did happen at Bishop Ryan High School. And uh, and kudos, by the way, to the school for, for jumping on this and obviously following their protocol. Uh, and I can't imagine just how frustrating and how uh, tenuous everybody was wondering what was going on here because obviously, like I say, it's time and place, right? Uh, after the terrible incident in, in, in Pittsburgh over the weekend, you get a call like this and you, you just hope that everything's going to go all right. It did yesterday. But uh, good to know that the school understands exactly what's going on, and they jump right into action with what had to be done, and obviously police service doing the same thing. Uh, we'll obviously wait for updates on this. As uh, Superintendent Mason said, the inf- investigation is ongoing into this incident, and uh, hopefully they'll have a successful result to finding out exactly who was responsible for this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a report, students are attacking staff members at uh, Hamilton Public Schools more often. Uh, this is an annual report that's done. Uh, student attacks against uh, staff at Hamilton Public Schools were up in all categories, uh, with 42 requiring time off 
for up to 19, uh, that's up from 19, rather, from the year before. Uh, the report was presented to the Human Resources Committee and shows the bulk of the lost time cases were in elementary schools with educational assistance. Joining us to talk about this is Alex Johnson, who is the trustee for Wards 11 and 12, and also the vice chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Troubling report, isn't it? It is. I think trustees, um, as well as our staff, are certainly concerned with the numbers, um, but we're also putting, as was highlighted in the article, a number of measures in place in order to ensure that we're we're taking strong action in this area. The numbers themselves, obviously, are bothersome, but did, did you get details, Alex, as to what's actually happening here? And, and I know there's probably no two incidents that are the same, but uh, how would you categorize the kind of violence that's going on? So I think what's um, what's important is that this has become an issue that our board, as well as boards across the province, have put a spotlight on. It was an issue that our employee groups, um, as well as employee groups across the province, put a spotlight on in the last two provincial elections. And as a result, there's um, been an increased focus. So here in HWDSB, we've certainly been doing a lot more training in this area and what qualifies is um, an incident that needs to be reported on. And as a result, we, we are seeing more um, better reporting and, um, and we're able to take more action. The incidents themselves, there's a wide variety of, of incidents. It can be anything from... Um, a student perhaps um, throwing, um, uh, throwing, say, a pencil or eraser um, towards an individual, towards a staff person, to um, uh, an incident where the whole class would need to be ev- evacuated. So there's a whole range of incidents that uh, fall into this report. What kind of feedback are you getting from, from teachers and from education assistants on this? I mean, this is a safety issue, clearly. It is, and... Um, we are certainly hearing concerns from our employee groups, and rightly so. I think that, um, as I said, this is an issue that everyone's concerned about, and it's something that our board is looking to work with our partners, um, our employee groups, as well as the province, um, as this is an issue that's not just taking place here in Hamilton, but reports are up of violence in our classrooms across the province. And, you know, it's 2018, and it's an issue that everyone does want to take seriously. Well, absolutely, and and your point's well taken, by the way. I know we're talking about the Hamilton circumstance here, but this is a province-wide problem uh, that obviously I I would hope that the ministry is going to be looking at because these numbers are, are, as we mentioned off the top, are rather troubling, and I know that there are similar numbers anyway in other jurisdictions. Uh, And obviously the public safety issue and the student safety issue and the teacher safety issue have to be paramount, you would think. Absolutely. Um, So in the years, I guess the year to come, we're certainly looking at our board to see not only uh, funding for special education maintained, we we're, have been strong advocates here in Hamilton for increased funding for special education. Every year our board looks to top off our special education budget by $2 million, and, um, and that's because we recognize that we need increased supports in this area. It's important for all of our students and staff um, to feel safe when they come to school. That's when learning is done best. Well, staffing is an important issue, and, and your point's well taken. Look at it, because I know the Hamilton Board has been very vocal over the last number of years uh, with the ministry about staffing uh, levels, of course, when it comes to this, and especially when it comes to education assistance. 
I, I don't know if there's established ratios. I would assume the ministry's working with something like that anyway. But I've heard anecdotally, and I'm sure you have too, Alex, that look at there, there's just not enough bodies in the classroom in supervisory roles. Well, and that's, I mean, we have to, to work with the funding that, uh, that we're given. Um, that's where Hamilton has made special education a priority. And um, so it's working with, um, to put people in the classroom. It's also working to put a number of preventative measures in place. Um, I know in one of my schools, Mount Hope, uh, when you walk in, the whole school has been uh, freshly painted. Um, the pink colors, as of a few years ago, there used to be 32 different colors. And the principal there talks about how um, those colors alone could trigger behaviors. Um, so looking at, at things that um, are not always thought of um, outside of the box in terms of what each individual student, what triggers them, how do we prevent it, how do we decrease transitions, um, as that's often a time where we see increased behavior. Um, so looking to, to minimize opportunities for behaviors to take place, and that comes with excellent training and knowing our students. How do you categorize this? Now, obviously, I don't mean you, but I mean the people that are doing the research on this. Uh, in, in, when you talk about a, a, an attack, uh, it conjures up this idea in your mind uh, about somebody who's being physical and assaulting somebody else. And as you mentioned, it might be throwing something, it might be pushing somebody, could happen in any different circumstance. But, of course, also, when we're talking about the realm of education assistance, uh, you're talking about special needs children who some may be on the autism spectrum. Others could have other uh, issues that they're dealing with at the same time, uh, which increases the risk. And now, are those numbers also included in, in the statistics we're talking about here? So I think it's important to note that um, a violent incident report does not necessarily mean that there was an incidence of workplace violence mm -hmm. based on the Ministry of Labor definition. So what this is, is it's a mechanism to collect information on the incident that has occurred in the school system, and it's so that we can investigate it properly and then take um, corrective steps to ensure um, that uh, uh, that that doesn't happen again or to minimize opportunity for it to happen again. So it's, it really can be a variety of incidences. Um, I think that you're correct. The terminology can be quite frightening. At the same time, this bill is a serious matter. And um, uh, you know, perhaps behaviors in years, you know, in the past um, were acceptable. It's no longer tolerated in 2018. And that's where we want to make sure that our schools are extremely safe and um, that uh, that's where we're working with our partners. Are there are there province-wide standards, Alex, that, uh, that the board can lean on and, and, and use, a, a protocol that's established? I, I would think especially for education assistants who usually have uh, more of a hands-on approach with some of the special needs students. Our staff absolutely do rely on ministry set standards. Um, and with that, though, each board has the ability to enhance. So that's where we have at HWDSB focused on training, um, focused on providing um, those different supports and resources, um, as well as ensuring that our um, school principals are providing um, a a heavy, I guess, supportive role to our EAs, to our classroom teachers, and supporting um, the relationship in that classroom. I imagine there's an ongoing dialogue, too, with uh, parents and, and staff, teachers and, and, and the education assistants, uh, about some of the students, they, uh, probably even on a daily basis, because, I mean, their, their condition, attitudes, etc., can change almost daily. 
Absolutely. And that's where you saw um, over the last um, year where we had our priority schools report put forward um, an increased focus on uh, what we consider to be our high needs and um, um, medium needs schools. And with that, our superintendents are in our schools, um, especially our priority schools more frequently. Um, We are changing um, how we focus our resources across the board, and we are seeing the results of I guess, in return. So um, that's where we are seeing some increases with our student learning and achievement. And we hope to also uh, continue to see gains when it comes to ensuring safety in our classroom. I, I was intrigued by the, the mention you just gave about repainting the classrooms in, in one of the schools up on your districts. Uh, because this has taken on a whole different approach now. The, the, the psychology of this whole thing has changed dramatically, hasn't it, in the last number of years? That I, I mean, we do know that, for instance, that even colors, uh, the color of walls, uh, the kind of lighting, etc., can have an impact on, on some of these students. Absolutely. And our board put together a manual for all of our schools as we're rolling out um, repairs and renovations and renewal to all of our schools across the system, and we have a master plan. Um, Part of that includes how we design our buildings so that um, they are not only accessible in terms of ways that we often think about in terms of wheelchair accessibility, but also that it's promoting a calm, soothing environment. Um, So everything from the colors that we pick to um, the lighting that's in place, um, how how the buildings are structured to promote um, um, a reduction of echoing um, and a reduction in uh, sound um, so that it's uh, quiet. All of that is very important, and um, that's built into our manual. And as we continue to roll out our renewal of all of our schools, um, soon they will they will all be up to date in that regard. Well, I know some of your schools have actually incorporated, uh, I guess for lack of a better expression, quiet rooms uh, where the lighting is dimmed, and it's, a, a, I guess, a place for a sort of a timeout if if uh, it looks like there could be a concern and a problem. But obviously there are, time, there are space limitations. I guess you can't do that in every school, can you? Um. We do. Um, We do have those spaces available for all of our students. Um, There's different models. So uh, one-time snoozeling rooms were um, all the rage, um, as well as uh, there's, I guess, different models across the system. Um, Each school is um, based on meeting the current school's population and their needs. And so with that... um, um, one of the, I guess, strongest things, too, is to teach self-advocacy, so helping the student to understand what their needs are in the moment. Um, and so when they are starting to feel anxiety, it's for them to, to let a caring adult know, and um, so that caring adult can assist them whether that needs to, that's um, leading to go to a quiet room or to... Um, just assist them in finding some quiet space within the classroom. Alex, what about the ratio? I, I mean, obviously, ideally, you'd like to have a one-to-one with a, a, an educational assistant and, and, a, and a student. Uh, and I know that there was a time where that just wasn't possible because the funding wasn't there. Has that situation improved? So um, we did increase our EAs um, over the last um, over the last two years. And uh, with that, though, there certainly there's not the ability to have a, an EA for every single um, child that has been identified. And nor would I say that that's the full solution. I think that um, 
when we're looking at how do we best support our students, um, again, there's many mechanisms. So reducing the number of transitions, as we know that that often is very stressful. Um, so for some of our students, um, they may go straight to the principal's office in the morning and ha spend some quality time with the principal. They may help with the announcements before transitioning into their classroom because being in the hallways might be a little bit too busy for them and um, provoke a trigger first thing in the morning. Um, so it's about knowing our students, um, looking for ways to help them to address the situation. That's not always having one-to-one. -one. That said, um, I think that a lot of folks uh, would feel, a lot of parents, whether they have a child with special needs or not, that um, that there certainly is a greater need for more EAs. Um, but at this time, um, that's um, with the funding that we receive from the province, um, uh, we are, I guess, we're not able to increase that level any further. Well, speaking of money, and I don't want to get too political. I guess maybe I do want to get political here. And let's do it anyway. Uh, what you're talking about doing, and, and you know, the board's got some very innovative plans here, but of course it's going to take money. Uh, and it's in some cases going to involve retrofitting a lot of the older schools. And I know you've got a lot of them in your districts uh, that you're representing. They all do, I suppose, right across the city. Mm -hmm. uh, the the announcement about cutting the uh, the cap-and-trade program and that money that was supposed to go to the boards of education uh, would have gone a long way towards addressing a lot of the stuff you just talked about here. That's, that's going to be a monumental challenge for your board and every board across the province. So I think boards across the province, and especially here in Hamilton, we are looking to highlight the direct impact that cuts make to education, and um, and it, it has a direct impact on students. So our board has a long-term facilities master plan uh, where we have um, been continuously rolling out school renewal. Um, we are partway through that plan, and um, to, to remove those dollars, it's not just a delay in the aesthetics of the building, but it actually has a direct and immediate impact on student learning and achievement. And that's, um, those are the stories that we will be highlighting. Uh, right now, um, we did lose some funding in uh, July. Um, that said, uh, we are still on track with our long-term facilities master plan. If further cuts were, uh, were to be made, we would be very concerned and we would be going back to the ministry to express those concerns. Well, and you're only one of many voices, obviously, that are going to be doing that. I think a lot of people were caught off guard by this. It's, it's difficult when, when the board tries to plan out four, five, six years into the future, uh, and you're, you're counting on funding sources that the government says are available, then you get a change of government, and then, you know, it's almost like you get the carpet pulled out from under you right now because uh, you still want to go through with the plan, and, and your your point's well taken here. Uh, this is not, fr you know, the extra frills you're putting on here. It's not like a big screen TV in every room. We're talking about retrofitting these uh, to make them wheelchair accessible, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of those plans are, I'm not going to say they're going to be put on hold right now, but it's going to be a lot harder for your board and every board to reach your goals and your targets. So we're not we're not there yet, Bill. So I, I wouldn't. Um, um, I think that it's it's a concern that all boards across the province are certainly talking about that. Um, um, if there were to be cuts, um, how how would we respond? But we're not there yet. And um, um, despite the loss of um, um, the green energy grant in July. We are still on track to meet our school renewal needs, and uh, and we look forward to um, to having a positive relationship with the province. I think that um, I think the province as well 
um, they, I would hope that they would also be very understanding and appreciative of, of the direct impact on students. And um, certainly, while they're looking to save money, they would also be um, looking to, to reduce that impact. So that's where I think there's going to be um, uh, those conversations um if they do need to happen in the future, the focus will certainly first and foremost be about the students and how do we ensure that their learning needs are being met. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I would like to think that's going to be the goal of the ministry. And, and we're kind of in a, a, a holding pattern here. I mean, the government's announced that that money's not going to be available. And, and that's good news that it's not having a direct impact on the board right now. But we, they haven't done a budget yet, so we don't even know where money is going to be allocated. And I guess until that shoe drops, we're, we're kind of just guessing or speculating what might happen and hoping, I guess, for all the, the, the good things. We are, and what I can say is that our board has been um, extremely diligent when it comes to balancing our budget. So an interesting fact, school boards are the only level of government that must balance their budgets each and every single year. And with that, um, we, I can say that with our board, um, especially over the last two terms, we've worked very diligently to... Um, improve efficiencies. Um, we have had we have annual audits uh, that take place, and um, in in terms of where we are fiscally right now, I can say that we're we're operating a very tight ship. Um, so with that, um, I think that uh, I think that if the ministry was to look to see if there was extra fat to cut, so to speak, that they would find that our school board and certainly a lot of other school boards across the province are doing a very good job and uh, perhaps our models to other other ministries and other systems across Ontario. Certainly hope so. Alex, uh, thanks so much for the update and the clarity on this. appreciate the time today. Thank you. Alex Johnson, of course, who is the uh, vice chair of the Hamilton Board of Education and trustee for Wards 11 and 12. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about trade. Now, we've spent an awful lot of time uh, talking about international trade, about uh, obviously the the uh, NAFTA negotiations uh, uh, and, of course, what's going on with some of the other trade deals with Europe and, uh, and Trans-Pacific. But what about interprovincial trade? Well, uh, Premier Doug Ford, there he is again, and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe met yesterday and uh, decided that they're going to try to do something about what they think are some problematic features of uh, uh, in interprovincial trade. Premier Moe and I have just signed an MOU. We've agreed that our provinces will begin bilateral discussions to lower interprovincial trade barriers. That is so critical. And I look forward to working with other provinces and territories to bring interprovincial trade barriers down. My friends, this is what Open for Business is all about. So while the federal government dreams up new ways to tax everyone, we're thinking about new ways to create jobs. Uh, sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, but there are some people that are rather skeptical about this and just wondering how sincere and how devoted he is to this concept. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business joins us here in studio to talk about this. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, interesting idea. Uh, you and I have talked about this in the past, and it's something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. No. Uh, interprovincial trade barriers, really, that have been up for some time. It's not the first time somebody's brought it up, but uh, boy, they... When they do talk about it, uh, we virtually get nothing done about it. <laughs> well, this is one of those examples of an issue that makes great sense 
uh, in practice until you try to operationally do something about it. So let me maybe tee it up this way, Bill. Interprovincial trade barriers uh, account for about 50 to $100 billion of additional costs to our economy that just aren't needed. It would be as if we were all paying a 6.5% sales tax on everything because of it. Now, where does it have an impact on some of those lovely uh, industries that we've talked about in terms of U.S. trade? So the dairy industry, poultry industry, wine, beer, uh, we, we have some tremendous barriers. So a simple example, uh, for many, many years, if you brewed beer in a different province, Let's say I brewed beer in Manitoba, and then I wanted to bring that beer into Ontario. You had to pay a tax that an Ontario brewery didn't. So it set up a situation that Molson and Labatt's had to have small breweries operating in every single province. When we signed free trade with the United States, you could have one gigantic brewery in, say, Cincinnati, Ohio, brew beer for the Canadian market and ship it to every province without a problem. But I couldn't get a big brewery in Ontario to do that because every province had a barrier. So... The minute you say, and I love this, I, I, I don't, I'm not arguing against what uh, the premier has done with the premier Mo. Uh, good, let's let's reduce some barriers. But the minute you start to do that, what is a barrier to one person is a protection to another. And oh well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not sure our dairy farmers want milk from Manitoba coming into Ontario, or in the case of Premier Mo from Saskatchewan coming into Ontario. Start over there. Deal with that barrier first. And that's always been the problem with this. Each province kind of likes the supports that it has. There was a meeting. I guess it was two, three years ago now between Kathleen Wynne and uh, Christy Clark, who was mm-hmm. the BC Premier at the time, and they had this the same discussion. If you would call Marvin. Yeah. And, and essentially what the two of them said, this is a great idea, uh, but we have to protect our industry. So, so yeah, it's just you guys go ahead and do that because I think I'm in total agreement with it, but just don't touch mine. Yeah. Well, for instance, yesterday, and again, I'm not trying, I, I, don't, I want to make sure people understand, I'm not trying to slam uh, Premier Ford. So he has this photo op with Premier Mo. They shake hands and they sign what's called a memorandum of understanding. And it's a basically one paragraph that says, we are going to agree to reduce barriers between Saskatchewan and Ontario, and they shake hands and great flourish. There are no details. There's no timetable. There's no where are we going to start on this. So let's start first with barriers on wine or beer or butter or whatever it is. It just says we'll, we'll work hard and do the best we can. And I find those things just not worth the paper they're printed on. I would feel much better if they had some meat and actually said, here's the very first one. We're going to agree today to get rid of whatever this barrier is. I, I have no idea what it would be, but they'd put something out there. When they just speak in generic terms, I, I get worried about that. But and yet, and yet, I would tell you, Bill, yeah, I think it is very important. If we are going to have Canada have freer trade with the world, uh, I don't want a situation where it's easier for someone in Ontario to buy a case of California wine than it is British Columbia wine. There was a Supreme Court case about this. There have been the, many the, cases the famous, about this. Yeah, the famous beer case, uh, the guy from New Brunswick that went across the border to Quebec to buy his beer. Uh, and he was charged, and he took it all the way. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled against him. In other words, they maintained the barriers. Well, in that situation, there was a yes, they did because there was a 1921 law that talked about this. And uh, it, again, basically, the rule is this: if I go to another province and I buy some beer, let's say for my personal use, and I have I bought 24, and I'm bringing six of them back home with me, not a problem. But in his case, you know, he really liked a certain brand. It wasn't available in New Brunswick, so he'd make these monthly pilgrimages and not buy 24, but 
by you know, 240, 10 cases. And the police pulled him over and said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And that violates the spirit of this. And so they said, yeah, until you change this 1921 law, that's the law of the land. I'm sorry. Even though maybe logically this is stupid, especially in a world of free trade, Okay, provinces, if you don't want this to happen, change the law. They, they, they would be thrilled, but they can't write the law themselves. But but most of the, the laws and the restrictions that we're talking about here, Marvin, as, and you just talked about this one from 1921, are, are that antiquated, aren't they? I oh, mean, yes. they were they were They were established when probably interprovincial trade was much more important than international trade to a lot of these economies. Yes, or there was, again, remember, one person's... Uh, um, uh, inefficiency is also someone's protection. So that was also the fear that some economy was growing rapidly and they may flood our market. So we've got to protect our people in this area. I'll just give you another quick example, Bill. You know, uh, uh, today a big thing that's booming in Ontario is craft breweries, all these yeah. lovely little craft breweries, and we encourage them. It's a wonderful time. But let's suppose I'm Ontario Craft Brewery and I think, hmm, I'd like to now start selling my product in Quebec or in British Columbia like that. Another funny law we have is how you go about promoting, how you go about promoting uh, beer in other places. For instance, in British Columbia, I cannot show an advertisement of you consuming beer while operating heavy equipment. Now, I think that makes sense. I don't want someone driving a bulldozer and having a beer. But in British Columbia, the definition of heavy equipment includes barbecuing. <laughs> so that in an ad in British Columbia, if the host who's barbecuing, he can only consume the beer when the lid of the barbecue is down and the flames are hidden, then he can have a sip or she can have a sip of their beer. Otherwise, if the barbecue is up, the host cannot be drinking this. Now, if I'm trying to create one ad, because I don't have the budget to create an ad for each individual province, I'm just a little craft brewer, I need one ad to do all. I've got to read every province's codes on advertising and get it consistent. I think it's in Alberta that if I do an ad for an uh, alcohol product like beer, I also have to show people consuming food because we don't want you drinking just on an empty stomach. And so again, I, so I've got to get the barbecue down. I've got to have somebody eating a hamburger. I've got to do this. And it, it, it's easy for Molson and Labatt, given their size, but for a craft brewer, these things are barriers. And why do we have them? Why don't we just have one common code across Canada? Well, good question. And and the, the industries that are, are asking provinces to put these protectionist measures in place, uh, do they not understand that if you take these barriers down, they're going to sell more product? I think on one level they do, but it's, it's always the fear of the unknown. It, it's a bit, built like... Um, uh, we've signed the USMCA, and in the USMCA, we, Canada, have agreed to allow a little more American milk into Canada. Uh, it's 15% more, so when I say it like that, oh my God, 15% more, but it's going to go from 3.25% of the market to 3.6% of the market, and yet that's enough that many farmers in the dairy industry are just terrified about all of this. By the way, a little story, footnote story to that yesterday in, uh, I think it was Wisconsin, but it might have been North Dakota, was that the farmers there said, is that, we fought and this is all we got? This isn't going to help me at all. But, you know, it's the fear of the unknown. We're going to go someplace we haven't been before. As crazy or clunky as the system is today, at least I understand the system today, if you go to this new one, gosh, it's going to be different. Well, I think different and better. I don't think it's different and worse. 
But what are, what are the chances of success with this? First mm-hmm. of all, these are only two of the premiers. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I, at one time, I think they've all talked about this. And uh, it, there's got to be a discussion about this. And it, it just seems highly unlikely. I mean, even yesterday when, when uh, Premier Ford and Premier Mo made these announcements, uh, this MOU about this, uh, they, the first thing that the opposition parties asked, well, how come you didn't send trade representatives to that trade conference last year? So you, clearly your heart's not in this. Yeah, yeah so, <coughs> Bill. <clears throat> Let's say that again. Uh, last week, and uh, in, towards the end of October, there was a cross-provincial conference on trade. And top of the agenda, get rid of interprovincial trade barriers. And neither Saskatchewan nor Ontario sent a representative to it. So wait a minute. We had a conference where all the provinces were supposed to be there to talk trade, and you didn't go. But now yesterday, your memorandum of understanding, how serious are you? And that's, I think that's my concern about this. I don't oppose the idea. I really would love to see some meat go on those bones, and let's let's start doing it. And in fact, I think uh, there's a role here for Ontario to show leadership. It's the largest of the provincial economies. 35% of the population of Canada is in Ontario. And, and rather than worrying about reciprocity, let's just do it. Let's do it, and let's show leadership to whether it's Saskatchewan or, or New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. Let's show some leadership and take a chance. However, however... We've talked this way before, and we haven't seen it happen. So forgive me for being skeptical. I'll believe it when I actually see some legislation come forward. I mean, you use the example of wine, uh, which obviously is a growth industry. Yeah. Uh, Ontario has a, a fabulous wine industry it right does. now. BC has a fabulous wine industry. It does too. But it's still cheaper to buy California wine in <laughs> Ontario. Well, or it, so there's a price. There'll always be a price thing. Fair enough, Bill. And that gets to economy scales, the size of wineries. Interprovincial trade doesn't change that so that a California winery is 10 times the size of an Ontario winery. They're going to make wine more cheaply. But, but, it's but more, part of that, part of the price of that BC wine I might want to pick up at the LCBO is going to be because of these, these tariffs that have been put in place. Uh, right. And so that's the part that worries me. If it's easier for us to buy American product or Australian product or Chilean product than it is to buy our own Canadian product, that worries me. Now, again, here's another simple example, the LCBO. If you go into the LCBO, the way the LCBOs are designed is they give the prime shelf space closest to the door to Ontario wines. That's a discrimination. They're saying we're, we're doing that on purpose. We want to promote our Ontario wineries first and foremost. It is actually all a government-owned store. And now we'll have the other ones there, so it's not like we don't stock them, but we don't give them the primary shelf. And there's lots of people who say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. That's not fair. Shouldn't you be doing it based on volume or something? Give the best-selling wines the prime space. So, you know, I'm not saying we're going to get to total free trade overnight. We may want to keep that discriminatory practice, but let's suppose there's a difference in the taxes. So it's, uh, I'll just make up a number here and say 15% on Ontario wine, but 21% on BC wine. Let's get rid of that. And again, I understand that people say, oh, but you know, I kind of like that because it gives my product an advantage over theirs. What you really should be doing is putting out really good product. Forget about the price aspect to it. I know when it comes to wine and even beer, craft beer is an example, people are prepared to pay for better quality. People are prepared to pay for better taste. Uh, So compete on that. Do the best you possibly can, but let's get rid of these other little niggly things. Especially when it comes to alcohol. I mean, you know, there's... I can see somebody going to a, a no-frills and say, okay, I can buy macaroni a lot cheaper there than I can at, at one of the larger stores. But when you get into b- beer, wine, et cetera, I mean, you have a specific desire for a certain product. 
And, and you're going to go looking for that, which is why obviously the marketing of this study, you will pay more because you say, hey, I like that brand, whether it's an Ontario wine or California, BC, whatever the case might be. And you'll go all over the place trying to find it. Yeah, exactly. I, I had some friends over. They really raved about it. So I'm going to have it again. Uh, I don't want to take a chance on something I don't know. Let's go do that again. So I mean, I know these are, these are just one-off examples, Bill, but it just shows you how tightly woven. So when I say a number like $50 billion or $100 billion inefficiency in the market, it's not... One billion in total here. It's five cents here. It's ten cents here. It's twenty-five cents there. It just accumulates because of the volume of purchases. Uh, and it would, I would say, it'd be just wonderful if we could do that. It's fascinating. We'll have these big conferences. We'll spend fifteen months to deal, do a free trade deal with the United States. We aren't prepared to spend fifteen hours to talk between the provinces. Well, and the reason we keep referencing beer and wine here is because anytime any premier has brought this up, it's always within that reference point. But it's it's the beer and wine industries. So obviously, they see potential. But nobody seems to want to make that first move. Right. But again, in fairness, it's not limited to that. Many agricultural products, I, I just wrote dairy a minute ago, cheese, poultry, there, there are differences. And here, again, what we might have is a situation that it's easier to get American eggs into Canada than it is to get, say, Quebec eggs into Ontario. That's, that's when it starts to concern me. So you're not anticipating any next steps anytime soon from these two guys? Well, uh, what's interesting is there certainly is a friendship developing between Premier Moe of Saskatchewan and Premier Ford. Uh, they have a common enemy in Justin Trudeau, uh, and they, they, the two of them are taking Justin to court around carbon taxes. Yeah. Um, so if out of that discussion comes closer relationships on trade, I'm, I'm all for it. But I, I would rather see them not work in bilateral or two-person parties. I'd rather see them come to a table with all 10 provinces and make some significant action. Um, and I, I've been wondering where that leadership is going to come. Should that be led by Canada, it, which in a way has no skin in the game because it's not Canadian rules that cause these. These are provincial rules. Should it come from one province? If Doug Ford wanted to make this a hallmark of his time as premier, I would support him 100%. I just don't sense that he thinks he's going to get a lot of hay out of that. So... Nice photo op yesterday. We'll see if anything happens. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.